Well, I am really uh, excited to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, how excited can you get on a Saturday morning to come and talk about grief? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, it seems like you look forward to other things on a weekend other than talking about grief. And yet grief is, uh, is an important subject because it's part of life. And uh, Pastor Adam already alluded to that. Uh, a couple of uh, uh, ground rules that I kind of follow uh, when I'm speaking. Uh, first of all, I, uh, I really don't like pure monologue. I, I really, as, as much as possible, I, I want today to be a time of, of dialogue, uh, a time of interaction. Uh, you can't possibly... Uh, sit here and listen to someone talk about grief and lecture to you uh, for uh, a period of about five hours today. That that would just be insane. And so I want, right from the start, to make it clear that uh, I, I want you to be involved. And at times uh, in the process, as we move through the day, we're actually going to take some breaks, and I'm going to have you do some little exercises around the table uh, to uh, invite you to be involved and to allow you to talk either with each other. But I just want you to know if at any point in time during the day, if there's something that you would like to share with the rest of us, uh, we want to make time for that because uh, one of the great opportunities of a day like this is that we can learn together. Uh, I do not come to you as one who has all the answers. Uh, I assure you uh, of that. And it has been very interesting, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about my journey uh, in, um, in just a few moments. But I, I have experienced things, but that doesn't make me an expert. Because one of the things that, that happens when we talk about grief is that we all experience different things and process things in different ways. So that's why, it, you know, grief, talking about this subject sometimes is, is kind of like nailing jello to the wall. Uh, it's very difficult to do that because it is just so different based on the way we have been raised. Uh, I was raised in a home, frankly, where uh, we were not uh, shown emotion. My parents didn't show any emotion. Uh, when we talked about death or dying. In fact, I don't ever remember uh, a discussion about death and dying uh, with my family growing up in my home. So our, our family of origin kind of speaks into that. Our experiences of life speak into how we address this subject. The scriptures speak in to how we address this subject. And, uh, of course, kind of where we are in life in the present tense right now, right here and now, uh, also inform the subject. And so there are a lot of variables is really the bottom line. And so you're going to hear things through different ears uh, based on a number of different factors in your own lives. Now, um, because today I I hope we're going to start by laying a a very good biblical foundation, Uh, I I want uh, in just a few minutes to take the time in this first session to do what we call a theology of grief and, uh, and suffering. Uh, it's important 
that we start by understanding what God has to say on the subject. Because this subject is very emotional. In fact, it is, it is just filled with emotion. But one of the things that we'll get into in a few minutes is that uh, sometimes those emotions are not healthy. Sometimes those emotions are driven more by our fallen nature than by our new nature in Christ. And so that's why I want us to start today and say, oh, no, he's going to give us a, he's from a Bible college, he's going to give us, he's going to try to impress us, he's going to wow us with all kinds. No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, But we are going to start with laying a biblical foundation. So uh, I, I just want you to understand where I'm coming from. I'm here to learn with you today. I'm not the resident expert on the subject of grief. I have my experiences, and I'll share with you some of the reasons why uh, this has become a, uh, an important issue and an important subject to me. But your stories, your experiences are just as valid, just as important as mine are. Now, one of the things when Pastor Adam and I started to talk about this subject was that I found it very interesting uh, that the name of your church was um, put together by three biblical words. And I'd like to start with our subject today. If we could just go to the first slide, um, Adam. Uh, it, The name of your church, uh, I don't have to tell you, is Bethany Grace Fellowship. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought of that, but it's made up of three words that are very important that come from the Scriptures. Uh, First of all was the town of Bethany. If you go to the second slide, it shows you, it just gives you a little bit of a map as to where Bethany is located. It was just about two miles southeast of the city of Jerusalem, And uh, Adam already told you what the word Bethany means. It means house of misery or house of suffering. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time to expound on this, but um, we do know that this was a, uh, historically, it was a small, lonely village. And the unique thing about it was that it was a place where invalids congregated. It was the home of one of the families that was dearest to Jesus, the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And some even describe Bethany as a a Jesus home away from home. Jesus spent more time in this city in terms of, of residence. He went there often to stay when he was in the Jerusalem area. And it was a place where frequently he and the disciples would stop over, and sometimes for a meal, sometimes for a period that they would stay there. But it was a safe place, and it was a safe place for a number of reasons, and the name gives some insight to that. The house of misery, the house of suffering, was a place where Jesus found safety. It was where he stayed during the last week of his life. 
And no self-respecting religious leader would run the risk of going to the house of misery, the house of suffering, which was filled with people who lived a quote-unquote miserable life. No one would go there because of the potential danger of coming in contact with someone who would make them unclean. Historically, we're told that it was a place that could have been a leper colony because Jesus stayed at a place of Simon the leper who lived in Bethany. Some scholars even surmise that that may have been the husband of Martha. Can't prove that, but there's some biblical evidence that would support that. Now, whether he was still alive and living there as a leper or whether she was a widow, uh, cases can be built for both of those. But Jesus was safe there because the religious leaders wouldn't take the chance of going to this place and defiling themselves, particularly the week before Jesus died because it was leading up to the Passover, one of the most significant weeks of celebration of the year. And so Jesus found safety there. Jesus also felt comfortable there. He felt comfortable with people who were miserable. He, he was comfortable with people who had a tough time in life. He was not intimidated by them. In fact, he even made reference, as you recall, uh, on at least one occasion in the Gospels. He said, you know, I, I didn't come to hang out with all of you who are healthy. You don't need the doctor. And he said, it's the sick who need help, who need a doctor. And I've come to minister to those. And we know that the Gospels are filled with some of those accounts. So Bethany is part of your DNA as a church. But the second slide, again, the next slide, tells us that um, I've already progressed through those. Forgive me for uh, not keeping you up, Adam. Um, Grace is your middle name. I remember growing up as a kid, uh, the Greek word for grace is charis. That would be the, uh, just in case you're interested, for those of you who are Greek scholars, for both of you who are here this morning. Um, uh, but th- that's one of those familiar w- Greek words that uh, probably that and agape and maybe koinonia might be the extent of your, uh, your Greek uh, language that you um, have come to appreciate. But I remember as a kid... Uh, uh, trying to understand what grace meant. And I remember that someone told me that, think of it as an acrostic. Remember that? The word grace, as you make an acrostic out of the word, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a good way to remember what the word grace is all about. God's riches at Christ's expense. It speaks of the fact that God gives us a gift. God shows favor toward us. God demonstrates his kindness toward us. And as we progress down through a couple of these bullets, we're reminded of these things. God here is giving us what we don't deserve. So grace is your middle name. Well, fellowship is the last part of your name. You have a first name, you have a middle name, and you have a last name. And fellowship is your last name. Now, in my opinion, uh, 
This is probably, this little word koinonia is, is perhaps one of the most misunderstood words that we use in our Christian vocabulary. Uh, the, the Greek word koinos or koinonia um, is a word that is really filled with meaning in the pages of the New Testament. It is a word that has both horizontal uh, horizontal and, and a vertical dimension to it. And we need to understand that if we're going to understand truly what biblical fellowship is. We have to start with the vertical. And I'm reminded of what the Apostle John wrote in his first letter. He said this, and you can just jot down this reference if, if you like. In fact, uh, we can move down. I think we have it on the screen, 1 John 1.3. Um, and it, it's referencing a relationship. Let's go back just one slide, if we could. Back one more. This relationship with God is what 1 John 1.3 captures. And John writes this, and he says these words. He says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. Then he goes on. Now, he's talking about the vertical uh, relationship as he says this next thing. He said, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Christ Jesus. Let me back up and just paraphrase that. What, what John was saying was that the reason we can have horizontal fellowship is because we have vertical fellowship with God the Father. Now, let me just clarify that for you in a little different way. Sometimes I hear people say things like they're going to have fellowship with someone who is not a believer. That's an impossibility. You can have a friendship with someone who is an unbeliever, but you cannot have fellowship because it begins, true fellowship, biblical fellowship begins with a relationship with God. But that's not where it ends. That's just where it starts. Because the second dimension of fellowship talks about this partnership with God. And this is a fascinating word when I, when I studied it out because it, it gave tremendous insight in the way this word was used. Now, you could jot down a couple of references here if you like. In, uh, in Luke chapter 5, verse 10, we're not going to turn there, but in Luke chapter 5, verse 10, this word koinonia or koinos was used to describe the partnership that Peter, James, and John had in their fishing business. Purely, it was a partnership, business-related. The exact same word is used in Philippians chapter 1 by the Apostle Paul. He's in jail in Rome. He writes to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, and he talks about this partnership, and he says, your partnership with me in the gospel. 
is what was such a blessing to Paul. In other words, it, understanding what a partnership means, it, it explains to us and helps us to understand that, that this is something that we are all in together. We're doing it all together. The third dimension, it also suggests an ownership with a responsibility of sharing. Now, again, allow me just to give you a couple of references. In Acts chapter 2, we find that on the birthday of the church, that this was immediately part of the DNA of the local church. In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 44, it describes what happened right from the very beginning. It says that all believers were together and they had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone who had need. So whatever they had, they didn't put their name on it. And they said, if someone else needs it more than I do, it's theirs. We see that continue to unfold again. Chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. Even in greater description, we find the word being used again. All believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared, koinonia, they shared everything. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales to the apostles' feet, And it was distributed to anyone who had need. So here we have this idea of an ownership with the responsibility of being a good steward of the things that we own and sharing them with somebody else in need. Now, all of that is captured in the word fellowship. It's used in these different ways. It starts vertically with a relationship with God but it means that we're in partnership together to accomplish God's purposes. And one of those partners, uh, purposes is to make sure that we have a clear understanding of the responsibility of stewardship for the things that God has entrusted to our care. Now, you put all of that together. And what that means is this next slide, and this is already written out for you so you don't have to waste your time taking notes. If you're going to live up to your name, for those of you who call Bethany Grace Fellowship your church, what this means is you must be a safe haven for the brokenhearted to experience both God's eternal gift of forgiveness through Christ and the open arms of acceptance through the ministry of God's word. Now, I'm not giving you that charge as a church. That's the name that you picked. I suspect that some of you may have been around when that name was picked. When you came up with that name, you began to identify 
this is what this church is going to be all about. And you may not have done the word studies on what each of those words means. However, I'm telling you now, if you say I'm a part of this church, biblically, that is the identity that you have given to yourselves. What a great understanding. What a great foundation for us to start talking today about this subject of grief. Now, I don't want to take too much time to do this, and I um, believe our break is at 1030. Is that correct? Okay. But one of the things that I've discovered over the years, and you can just put your packets down for a minute and just relax. You can even put your pens down. You can even close your Bibles um, because I'm not going to say a thing spiritual. Um, One of the things I've learned is that people listen differently. In fact, if you wouldn't mind blanking that so that I don't go blind. Thanks, Adam. Uh, is that people listen differently to a person who they know something about. If I walked in here, and to most of you, I'm a total stranger. There are a handful of you that I know. Some of you, uh, we go way, way back. Um, Adam and Tanya have been very dear to me. I love them both, and I've appreciated walking with them uh, through life and ministry together. Um, uh, I've known Dave for many, many years, Pastor Dave Horst. Uh, Lonnie, uh, of course, is a co-worker at the college, and, and there are a few others of you that I've, I've met, but our relationships don't go as deep. But you know what? You listen differently to someone who you know something about. And Adam just gave you a, a, you know, a, a little snapshot of something that happened in my life that at least gives me some right to speak to this subject. But it goes much deeper than this. And when I sat down in starting to prepare for today, and by the way, I want you to know that I've not done this before. This is a dry run. You are my guinea pigs. I may never do it again. I don't know. And I'm going to ask you at the end of the day anonymously to give me some feedback on the day. So I'll just uh, give you fair warning on that. But when I sat down and just started to do a little inventory of my life and what my journey has been about, I literally was surprised myself at how much grief and loss and suffering has characterized my life. How many times things have occurred in my life that maybe bring me here today or at the very least bring me to this point in my life? I'm going to run through a few of them. I probably will come back and reference a few of them by way of illustration later on as the day progresses. But again, I just want to reiterate, uh, this is just my journey. And every single one of us have been touched with some degree of suffering, of loss, of grief, of affliction, testing, 
trial. There are numerous words that the Bible uh, uses to help describe some of these kinds of experiences. But I just want to give you kind of a laundry list and just a thumbnail sketch of some of the kinds of things. And I, and I must warn you that some of the things, I'm, I, I'm not sharing them with you uh, to, for dramatic reasons. I'm not trying to sensationalize anything, but I'm going to try to be to the point, but some of them are rather graphic things as I thought about it, and just rehearsing, where has God brought me from? And so that journey really started for me in the 1970s. In the early 1970s, my interest was not in ministry. In the early 1970s, my, my, my interests were in law enforcement, and I spent a stint of my life, several years of my life, working in law enforcement, uh, federal and, and local. Uh, during that time, I was probably introduced to grief up close and personal for the very first time. So I'll give you a little bit more detail on this one. Um, I had rededicated my life. I came to Christ uh, as a child. Uh, I was about nine years old, absolutely sure that I made a decision for Christ uh, to know him and to claim him and his work on the cross. Uh, believed if anyone would... Uh, Ask me if I was going to heaven. Absolutely not a doubt in my mind. But I went to a very different kind of church than you have the privilege of attending. I went to a church that the only thing that they were interested in was sharing the gospel with people. But they did absolutely nothing to help people grow in their faith. And so I was fed a steady diet of evangelism and evangelistic sermons. All that, it's all that I knew. And so by the, time, um, by the time I had graduated from high school, I thought the only thing about going to church was simply understanding the gospel. And I got it. I understood it. I had trusted Christ. I knew that I was going to heaven. And I really didn't know that there was more to the Christian life than just that. And so it became quite a point of contention when I told my parents that I was leaving home um, uh, or that I was not going to church, and then that e- escalated into, well, if you're not going to church, you're not going to live here, then okay, then I'm not going to live here. And it really became uh, quite a point of tension. And my interests were in law enforcement, and so I was fortunate enough to, to get a job working for the federal government. It was a very unique program. They were recruiting people right out of high school for, uh, uh, for a, a training program uh, to become FBI agents. And I worked for the FBI. Uh, for two years down in Washington, D.C., worked full-time through the day, went to college four nights a week, three hours a night. And the idea was that by the time I finished college, I would then be 23 years of age, would qualify for agents training at Quantico. That was the career path that I was on. Uh, In the midst of that, I fell in love, and everything changed. And and, uh, my uh, wife-to-be was not thrilled that all of the field agents and all the field offices for the FBI were in uh, major cities. And she was a country girl, and um, I kind of enjoyed the city, uh, and I enjoyed the country as well. And I could make the transition, but it was a lot to ask of her. And so uh, I decided that I would leave working for the FBI and took a job working for the local law enforcement uh, in our our town, uh, the police department. 
It was then that I was, for the very first time, introduced to grief. Now, God had been working on my heart, and um, I won't go into the whole story, but I had uh, not walked away from God, but I just was not growing in my faith. Uh, but, um, but I, through a series of experiences and people who invested in my life, I came back to, uh, uh, to an understanding that I needed to grow in my faith and uh, started that process and was fortunate enough to be connected with a group of people in a church who invested in my life. And, and so while I was a police officer, um, it was a smaller department, and we would rotate taking turns uh, doing what we called then the dispatch. Okay, so uh, it was my night to be on dispatch, and a call came in in the middle of the night, and to make the long story short, a gunshot had been heard. I dispatched the men out to the, uh, to the uh, uh, address, and uh, again, to make the long story short, there was a 17-year-old girl who had placed a double-barrel shotgun in her mouth and uh, pulled the trigger. I was on duty that night still when the uh, officers returned, and what they brought with them were uh, the shotgun, of course. They brought some Polaroid pictures. It tells you how old. Uh, in the early 70s, that's all they had. They had Polaroid pictures. They had uh, some clothing, um, the empty shotgun shells, and a note that she had written. And uh, I didn't memorize the note, but it went something to this effect. At the ripe old age of 17, she had concluded that there was absolutely nothing in life worth living for. Now, that was just unfathomable to me. But it was a defining moment in my life, and this was my first introduction to grief. And I did something that that night that uh, men are not supposed to do, Um, I wept uncontrollably. I got down in the middle of a police station after all the other guys cleared out and and I did my job of logging in the evidence. But I just kept reading that note and I kept looking at at the blood-stained clothing in a bag and things like this and and I just started to sob and I, I couldn't stop. And I got down on my knees and used that chair, that dispatch chair, and I made a promise to God that night that moved me in the pathway toward ministry. And I simply offered God my life. And I said, God, if, if, if you would see fit somehow to allow me to communicate to young people, that was my prayer, that there is a purpose in life worth living for, I would be pleased to offer you my life. Do that. That was my initial Introduction to death, dying, grief, and all of the emotion that came with it. Not long after that, I started at Lancaster Bible College as a student and as an assistant pastor at my church. Um, I was specifically called an assistant to the pastor, not an assistant pastor. An assistant to the pastor meant that I would do everything he didn't want to do. (laughs) And one of the things that he didn't want to do were things uh, that were not high profile. Let's just let it go and say that he liked being on the platform. He liked having the spotlight on him. He loved being the central focus. 
And so when a uh, relatively unknown woman called the church and said, I've been to your church a few times, um, but my best friend is dying of uh, cancer, would you come and visit me? He sent me to visit her. Well, little did I know that uh, she was one of the wealthiest women in our community. And uh, uh, after uh, visiting her every week uh, up until the time that she died of cancer, I had gotten to know her quite well. And so my very first funeral was for a millionaire uh, who was an eccentric woman. And uh, I think there were less than a half a dozen people in the room because uh, very few people knew her. My second funeral, however, was quite different. My second funeral, Adam may remember me sharing this in class as an illustration, but my second funeral was one of the most difficult things I've ever encountered in my life. It was a father in the midst of a blizzard who was plowing snow in his driveway. Unknown to him, his wife had dressed up their little three-year-old who wanted to go out and play in the snow. And the three-year-old came out, the father didn't know it, and the father accidentally backed over his own son and killed him. Uh, I was called because the uh, senior pastor happened to be on a missions trip in a tropical island at this point in time. And, um, and so I was called to the hospital. And I remember for the first time walking, I'd never even been in an emergency room before. And I remember walking in and seeing this man clutching his dead son. The baby was obviously dead, covered with blood, sobbing. And no one could persuade him to let the baby go. Um, I know I wasn't trained for that. We didn't have a class on what do you say in a hospital. And I'm sure that I didn't have a class for Pastor Adam either on that kind of thing. Because you don't have a clue what you're going to say. What it does is it increases your prayer life on the drive to the hospital, saying, God, uh, you pray the same prayer that Peter prayed, Lord, help me. That's the only thing you can pray. That was my second funeral in life. A few years later, I was the first responder at a car accident where a woman was trapped in a burning car. And her husband, as I pulled up, had run around to the other side of the car, and I immediately heard screaming. His wife was trapped in the car. Uh, She was unable to get her seatbelt off and open. And flames were engulfing the car. I was afraid that it was going to blow up explode because of all the gasoline. It was already burning. Flames were already inside the car. I knew it was just a matter of time until it exploded. And we tried, uh, burned our hands, trying to open the door to get her out. And we stood there, and all of a sudden, the voice became silent. And I stood there with him as he watched his wife burned alive. It was in the summer of 1979 that my wife and I had a teenage foster daughter who lived with us. 
Uh, that's another whole story that uh, I can't go into with great detail, but she was placed, uh, when she came to live with us, she was six months pregnant, and uh, she was placed for adoption. Uh, she was going to have another abortion. Uh, at the age of 16, she had already had one abortion. Now, we're talking about 1979, okay? So uh, she had already had one abortion. She was planning on aborting the second baby. My wife and I had persuaded her to bring the baby to full term, and uh, she did. And when that baby was three days old, I had the privilege of uh, dedicating that baby to the Lord and placing that baby in the arms of, of adoptive parents. Um, what we were not really prepared for was what that young teenage mother's emotion uh, and the, the, the sense of loss and grief that she would feel. Because she had carried this baby full term nine months and delivered this baby, and then she left the hospital without the baby. And I can well, again, just some of these things are so vivid and you know what I'm talking about. If you've experienced some defining moments like this in your life, you relive some of these things in your mind repeatedly. But I can remember uh, hearing her cry at night in her bed. I can remember her knocking on our bedroom door, my wife's and on, and, and she would ask if she could come in. And I remember that sometimes we would just hold her on either side of her. We would just engulf her in our arms, and we would just sob together. She knew that she had made a right decision, but it was a painful decision. It was a difficult decision. And we didn't, couldn't even begin to understand, even worse for me as a male, couldn't even begin to understand how she felt in giving up that child. The following summer, summer 1980, one of the campers, I worked at a camp just about every summer during the time that I was an associate or an assistant to the pastor. Pardon me. Um, didn't want to elevate myself there. To, uh, um, I was working in the summer camp, and uh, there was a kid there. She was just one of those kids who was just lovable. She was just a pint-sized uh, pint kid and uh, uh, 14 years old. And, and the kid, uh, all the kids at the camp uh, called me Uncle Jim. And I can remember her particularly because she was just such a, she was a, a little kid and the dining hall was up on top of this huge hill and she'd just get a running leap and she'd come and she'd jump on my back. She'd say, Uncle Jim, I'm just so tired of walking. Would you carry me up the hill? And she, so I piggyback, you know, it wasn't bad enough. I was in a little better shape in those days, but, you know, I would climb the hill and carry uh, this young gal named Terry on my back. We got a call um, in the fall of that year, in the fall of 1980, that she was riding her bicycle down a steep hill across train tracks, but she never saw or heard the train coming. And she was killed in that tragic train accident. In the early 1980s, I started to volunteer as, uh, and created a chaplaincy ministry. At the time, uh, I was uh, living near Philadelphia. I was on the faculty and staff at uh, uh, Philadelphia um, Bible College. Now it's uh, Philadelphia uh, Biblical University. 
And uh, I started a chaplaincy ministry at a hospital down in Philadelphia. At a, it was called the Metropolitan Hospital. If any of you are familiar with uh, Philadelphia, if you know where the police department is now, that was the old Metropolitan Hospital. And I started uh, this ministry for the purpose of training young men and, and women in how to do pastoral care, pastoral ministry. Well, we were assigned to a particular unit, and um, initially, eventually, it spread out to the entire hospital. And, um, uh, but the unit that I was assigned to was the palliative care unit. It was uh, that group of individuals on that floor who were terminally ill. And so each week when I would go there, uh, it was clear that most of them were there to die. Uh, the hospice movement um, was really just beginning in those days. And, uh, but it was also during that time in the early 80s, uh, 1984 in particular, when I came in contact with a young man who, again, it was a defining moment in my life. This young man was a homosexual. His name was Todd, and uh, he died on the same day that I met him. Now, the interesting thing was, was that when I met him in the morning, um, I was told by the nursing staff, don't go in the room uh, because he's infectious. And I said, what's he infected with? And they told me HIV, he's dying of AIDS. And I walked into the room, and he was sitting there, and his... uh, a homosexual uh, friend or lover, whatever you want to call him, was there with him, holding his hand. And when I extended my hand to him, um, he was stunned. And I, uh, I don't know. I sometimes my thinking is just a little different from other people's. And it just, it just seemed to me that if Jesus, if Jesus would touch the unclean without hesitation or reservation, that I ought to do the same. And the proper thing when I am introduced to someone who I don't know is just to extend a hand to them. And I did that. I extended my and he just laid there. He was stunned. He was fully alert and awake, as was his friend. And um, he said, who are you? And I introduced myself and said that I'm, one of the volunteer chaplains here at the hospital, and I um, wanted to introduce myself and see if it would be permissible for me to read a passage of Scripture with you or uh, pray with you. And uh, he gave me permission to do both. We chatted for a little bit, told me a little bit about his story. He had something called Kaposi's sarcoma. If any of you are medical people in the room, it's one of the uh, one of the things that often happens, it's a kind of cancer that uh, invades uh, the body when the immune system is down. But he had these purplish-colored splotches all over his body. And uh, so we chatted for about a half hour and uh, went home and uh, had only been home uh, back to my house for about about an hour or so. And I got a phone call from the hospital and they said, uh, Todd has asked if you would uh, come back. And uh, and so I said, well, sure, I will. And I went back, and he was in the same room, but he was now on a breathing, uh, on a ventilator, a breathing device. And his friend was there with him, and he said, uh, um, a priest was in, and he said the first thing the priest did was he put on rubber gloves 
and he wore a mask and a gown, and he told Ta that he would not touch him to give him last rites. And Todd told him to get out of the room, and he said, call that guy who was here earlier today. And so I walked back in the room, and uh, his friend had told me this circumstance, and I said, Todd, uh, you know, let's not kid ourselves. You're very close to death. I've, I've learned to be very straightforward and very honest with people. And I said, uh, Todd, at this point, you know, my greatest concern for you is where you will spend eternity. And he couldn't talk to me because he had a tube down his throat. And um, I said, I took his hand and I said, could, could you just blink if I ask you a question? I'll ask yes and no answers. And I said, just blink if the answer is yes. And if you, if, if you don't purposefully blink, then I'll, I'll know that the answer is no. And, uh, and so I asked him, I said, Todd, can I share with you what God has to say about the promise of eternal life? And he gave me the blink. And so I just walked him very quickly and very easily through a gospel presentation. It just took me a few minutes. And I asked, Todd, do you understand this? Blinked Yes. I said, Todd, I I realize that we're in a precarious position here. I said, but I've got to ask you a pointed question. Um, If you were to die tonight, do you know that you would spend eternity in heaven with God? He just stared at me. I said, Todd, would you like to know how you could enjoy forgiveness from your sin and the promise of eternity? And he blinked purposefully. And to make the long story short, I had the opportunity to lead Todd to Christ. Not only that, but a few days later, his gay friend called me and he said, no pastor wants to do the funeral service. Now, in those days, uh, funeral homes would not touch the bodies of those who had AIDS. Uh, All they would do would cremate them. They would put them in a disposable container. They would cremate them because they certainly wanted nothing to do with any of the bodily fluids. And so uh, Todd says, you know, we've got a funeral funeral home that will cremate them. He said, but I can't find a pastor. He said, would you consider doing it? So I had the privilege of doing a funeral, um, and I just simply said in the funeral, I'd like to share with you the decision that Todd made moments before he drew his last breath. I had the opportunity to share the gospel with um, probably about 30 gay men who were in that room. After returning to my alma mater, to LBC, as a faculty member in 93, it didn't take me long... um, to see that the seeds of compassion were being sown in my own heart. And I had great concern in leaving ministry as a pastor that I would lose touch with the reality and the needs of people. And so I purposed in my heart that I would try to do things each year that would stretch me and take me out of my own comfort zone. 
And so in the summer of 94, I volunteered for two weeks at a place called Covenant House in New York City. Now, uh, again, time is quickly slipping away. Uh, so I want to be very, very careful here. I can't go into too much detail, but a Covenant House is owned by Catholic Charities. It's run by the Catholic Church. Catholic Charities is their their mission arm. Um, and but it is it's designed. It is now worldwide, but it is designed for kids who are runaways. It's designed to get kids off the streets. And so for two weeks, I went and I lived. Um, uh, I lived in an, an apartment complex that they owned uh, with people who were had been runaways and were trying to turn their life around. But at night, usually in the early morning, we would go out and we would pick up kids on the street. We'd try to get them to come to the shelter. Um, but as I heard their stories, uh, and again, time just doesn't permit, as I heard their stories, every single one of them, were kids whose lives were filled with abuse, grief, rejection. And uh, again, I'm just taking these experiences in one at a time. And it wasn't until years later when I began to, to, to look at this theme of why all of these kinds of experiences and how they have touched my life, uh, do some of these things make sense? So two weeks of this, watching kids prostitute themselves on the streets of New York City. Kids my age, I have three sons. At that time, um, they would have been younger uh, children, one teenager, and, and the other two were a bit younger. But, you know, a kid doesn't just get up in the morning and say, ah, i got nothing planned for the day. I think I'll run away from home. They usually are driven from home by some kind of abusive situation which is driven by grief in their life or loss or confusion. That same fall, a friend of mine who was a pastor was dying of AIDS. And again, time doesn't permit to tell the story. But I tell this one to my shame. It's an important lesson for us to learn. Because in my prayer time for the two preceding days, the Lord brought this man's name to mind during my prayer time. And I kept telling myself, you know, yeah, I'll put that on my to-do list. I need to give him a call. I haven't talked to Doug for a little while. He was a pastor. He had contracted AIDS uh, as a result of a blood transfusion. Uh, His health, um, as he was deteriorating, he uh, lost his pastorate. He lost his livelihood then he lost a son due to a tragic accident. And uh, the next day, the same thing happened in my devotional time. And I made myself a mental note. I think I even wrote it down on my day timer. You know, I've got to get uh, in touch with Doug. Um, the third day, headlines of the paper, local pastor commits suicide. I did not listen to the prompting of the Spirit of God to minister to someone in suffering, someone who was grieving. And his grief drove him to the point of taking his own life. That connection with Catholic Charities from the summer gave me another opportunity to minister to people with HIV and AIDS at a place in Lancaster called Hope House, 
also run by Catholic Charities. And one of the things, frankly, that began to annoy me was that I started to ask myself, why is it that the Catholic Church seems to be the only one who cares about people who are suffering? Why is it that they're the ones who have the homes and the ministries and that the rest of us good evangelical fundamental Christians who have all the right answers don't have the time or the concern to invest in the lives of people who have incredible needs? Why won't we walk with people? So I became a little annoyed by that. That kind of changed some of the things that I said in the classroom and when I preached. And I find that as I'm getting older, my wife can testify to this. My wife Betsy is here with me today, my second wife. Um, I guess I went without saying. Um, But I get increasingly annoyed. I figure, you know, I'm on the downhill slide anyhow, so I might as well get it out of my system while people will still give. That's why I get invited to preach at a lot of places just once, Adam. You know, <laughs> you kind of go in like a gunslinger, you know. You just mow them all down and, uh, you know, what do you have to lose, you know. 95, I became dear friends with a student who was at the college who taught me a lot of lessons about loss and suffering. Her name's Gina. Uh, walked with her for a lot of years. Uh, she was bound by a wheelchair. She had cerebral palsy, still has cerebral palsy. And uh, she taught me a lot. She had a motorized wheelchair. She had to come to campus in one wheelchair. And then after she was um, on the campus, then she was uh, she would come to my office because that's where we kept her motorized wheelchair. And I used to always kid her. I said, the only reason uh, you don't use the other one is you just want me to pick you up and hug you every time you're on campus. And we just had a wonderful time laughing, and uh, our friendship just really grew. And uh tell you a real funny story about um, uh, taking her out for her birthday lunch one time, but I don't have time right now, maybe later. Um, 2000 was an unforgettable year. My best friend moved to Oregon. My, check, my secretary changed jobs, and... My first wife's, Rayanne's, uh, best friend was my secretary. So the two most influential women in my life, uh, I was always outvoted on everything. Um, but I lost my secretary. My best friend moved to Oregon. And on the day that my father died, my wife, Rayanne, was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer all on the same day. Fast forward one year and two weeks to May 5th, 2001, and she graduated to heaven uh, just ten and a half years ago now. And it was when I began to read her journals after she died that I understood that she was going through grief and loss as she was dying. Because of some of her journal entries, she realized what she was going to miss out on. And she referenced things like, I'll never get to be a grandmother. 
I'll never get to attend my son's graduations. I'll never get to see them go to the senior prom. I never get to dance with my son at a wedding. And I came to understand, you know, that she was, I was grieving primarily over the process of losing a wife, but she was grieving out of all the things that she realized that she was going to miss out on by exiting life early at the age of 47. A little over a year later, my youngest son became involved in self-destructive behavior, which actually led to uh, addiction to heroin, several arrests, rehabs, and some jail time. Probably talk about that at different points today. Betsy and I were married June 14, 2003. And on, uh, on the fifth month anniversary of our marriage, I gave her the gift of uh, having a stroke. I had a blood vessel that burst in my brain. I had dozens of seizures. For 45 days, I laid in a hospital bed. I was completely paralyzed on my right side. I had to have occupational therapy, speech therapy, physical therapy. had no clue what the future might hold for me. For any of you who have had long-term hospitalizations, you know that one of the greatest things and worst things is that you have nothing but time on your hands to think. I had no idea if I'd ever be able to stand again. No idea if I'd ever be able to speak correctly. If I'd ever be able to teach or preach again. So when I say I'm glad to be here today, I'm glad to be here today. But there were things that I experienced as a result of that stroke that involved loss. Uh, You would look at me today and say, man, you look healthy. You look too healthy. You need... South Beach. I'm working on it. I'm working on it, okay? Um, But I recovered incredibly well, much greater. And I remember graphically, I was in one of those moods where I was sick and tired of being in the hospital. I was moaning to everyone. I had a couple of male nurses who were just the best because these guys would just you know, shoot me right between the eyes. And they didn't they cut right to the quick, you know, and talk to me man to man. And at one time I was belly aching about everything, and the guy said, I'm taking you down to therapy today. And he took my wheelchair down. I had to go everywhere in a wheelchair. Took me down, and he parked me right in front of someone who's directly right across. Now, I can't go anywhere. I can't do a thing. I can't move, okay? I'm sitting there paralyzed, and so I've... I've got to look at this guy. The guy who he put me right across from was a man who had been electrocuted, the father of three. He had lost both legs, cut off right here, and one arm. He had one arm left. And I sat there. Or a long, seemed like forever watching it. 
And my nurse brought me back up to the room and he said, oh, do you have any more belly aching you want to do? Kind of put things in perspective for me as to how fortunate I really was. And I made a good recovery, not 100%, but well enough to be with you today, which I thank God for every day. A little over a year after that, um, not even a year, actually, I had a uh, relapse and uh, got sidelined at my son's wedding. I was supposed to marry my oldest son. And uh, I had to go John, to Johns Hopkins for several days at more seizure activity, which they couldn't stop. And uh, so I was not able to do my son's wedding. That was a loss. That was a big loss to me. It's one of the privileges of being a pastor. I had to baptize my own sons. I was looking forward to being a big part of their weddings. Got to marry my second son. My first son, though, I was sidelined. I just felt like a player who was taken off the team and put on the bench. Now, all of this to say, and I realize I've taken a long time to say it, all of this to say I'm well acquainted with pain, suffering, loss, grief, death, and all that comes along with it. Because for some reason, God has chosen to expose me through life in general and through ministry in particular to death and dying. And I realize that many of the things that I say today will be flavored heavily by that. And that's kind of my disclaimer. But I want you to understand clearly that when we're talking about grief, and issues of suffering and loss. The subject is much broader than that. And we'll try to give other illustrations of that because people erroneously think that grief is only connected to death and dying, and that just is not the case. Life change can trigger a lot of these same kind of emotions. There's a lot of discussion today, rightly so, about the state of our economy. That means a lot of people have lost their jobs. A lot of people have lost their homes. A lot of people have lost their retirement. They've lost their financial security. For a lot of men, that means that they have lost their sense of self-worth. Physically, we could explore a whole listing of things here, including all kinds of abuse, physical, sexual, verbal, loss of health, the entire process of aging, things like infertility, miscarriage. By the way, I left that off the list. My wife and I ran uh, our first two children. We lost to miscarriages. Mobility, amputation. Life issues in general, things like suicide or murder, natural things, birth deformities, disease, cancer, on and on. All of these touch the physical realm, the psychological realm, self-respect, 
Dreams are gone. We'll talk more about that. Independence. The anatomy of grief realizes that actually loss can include nearly everything tangible and intangible. It can change our perceptions either accurately or not. It affects people in all pages and chapters of their lives. Suffering, grief, and loss is no respecter of persons. So how do we begin to make sense of this? Well, we need to make sense of it by taking a look at a couple of, uh, a couple of statements from the Word of God. And we're going to go through these rather quickly. So we're just going to go through them one at a time. And uh, some of the passages I'll, I'll read. And uh, some I'm just going to reference. You have references there. I wanted uh, this to be um, something where you could just jot a few words down and, and maybe a comment or two, but not have to spend all of your time trying to jot things down feverishly. So let's go with the first principle because it's important that we establish how do we put this into God's perspective. And so let's start right in the very beginning with Genesis 1.27. And we're reminded that God created us in his own image. And when I use that terminology, some people define it differently. But when I use that terminology, I'm suggesting that in God's image, we are created with intellect, emotion, and will. God created us with the ability to think and reason. He created us with the ability to feel. He created us with the ability to make choices. That volitional part of our decision making. And so God has a lot of things that he says about death and dying and suffering and loss and tests and trials and other synonyms and words that we could plug in there. Now, the emotion is probably the heaviest word in here because we put a lot of weight on the things that we feel. And the subject of grief and that realm is so intensely emotional. But what we must understand is that in the fall of man, when sin entered the world, And intellect, emotion, and will were also affected by the fall. And so no longer do we think like God does. That's not our first inclination. No longer do we feel the things that God does. That's not our first emotional response. And usually our choices are not first choice to do what God would want us to do. But we cannot ignore the fact that God made us with the ability to think, to feel, and to do. And all of these are going to come into play in different ways as we explore some of these different things today. Secondly, second principle, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 to 19, again, that's the passage that talks about the fall. How pain, suffering, and death are consequences of the fall. 
Now, let me just refresh your memory. Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 and 19. I'll just turn to it as you're writing. But this is what God had to say to Adam and Eve. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Your pain will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, blessed are you. Excuse me. I I misread that. He said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree from which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And through painful toil, you're going to eat of it. All the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles, and you will eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food, and you will return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, I've just boiled that down in my own words and said pain, suffering, and death are the results or the consequences of sin. You know Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. Now, here's the irony, and it's the reality. We know theologically that this is true, but we don't get ticked off at the serpent for tempting Adam and Eve to sin. We get ticked off at God because he permitted suffering to come into our lives. When in fact, it's the devil that we should be most upset at. Forgive my frankness. I told you, I only get asked to speak a lot of places once. But why do, we, why do we always want to damn God? It's the devil who theologically is the one who is damned and should be damned. But you see, our first reaction is, God, why did you allow this to happen to me? Thirdly, quickly, Proverbs 19.21. Proverbs 19.21 just reminds us that nothing deters God from accomplishing his eternal purposes. Proverbs 19.21 says this, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. It's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Nothing is going to get in the way of God's sovereign plan. I hope, I hope you'll be able to be with us tomorrow morning, commercial, Sunday morning service. I want to preach tomorrow morning from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, and we're going to listen in to what Naomi had to say about God. 
I'll just give you a little preview. Naomi didn't know that all of the things that she had gone through in her life were related to God's eternal purpose. And when we lose sight of that and we only focus on man's plans, which is what Proverbs 19.21 says, we forget all about the eternal purposes of God because we live here and now. God sees that bigger picture and is concerned about the there and then. Fourthly, the fourth principle is this. You know this passage from Ecclesiastes. I'm not even going to turn to it. Tells us that there is a time for everything. There are appropriate times for weeping and mourning. God never looks at weeping and mourning as weakness. He never looks at it as something we should be ashamed of. Never once tells us that we should try to hold back the tears and keep it all inside, suck it up, be a man, man up. Never. We'll see that in graphic detail later on as we develop some other passages. The wisest man who ever lived said, there is a time to mourn. There's a time for life. There's a time for death. There's a time for weeping. There's a time for laughing. And interesting, you know, the New Testament tells us rejoice with those who rejoice. What's the other half of that verse? Weep with those who weep. Number five, let's be reminded that Jesus empathizes with our sorrows, grief, pain, and affliction. Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4. Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4. This is how he was described, recorded by Isaiah the prophet. Speaking of the Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. You remember that? Uh, He was a man of sorrows. He was familiar with suffering, is what Isaiah wrote. He was like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteem him not. Surely he took our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. And yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. And the passage goes on, you know, it well, but he was pierced for our transgression. You see, Jesus empathizes, and we see the Gospels filled with that, and we'll look more again at some of these things in greater detail as we move on. Number five, excuse me, number six, I think it is. Here we have Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, reminding us that those who mourn can be comforted. In the Beatitudes, Jesus talked to the crowds on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee and he sat them down. And in those Beatitudes, he reminded them, you know, the blessed are those who mourn. You're going to be blessed 
because you're going to come to understand the comfort that comes from God in a new and in a fresh way. Number seven, in Romans 5.12, uh, we know that death is every man's destiny. Romans 5.12. Realize I'm going rather quickly through those. You've been sitting for a long time. You've been very patient. Therefore, just as sin entered the world, and sin entered the world and death through sin, in this way, death came to all men because all have sinned. Romans 5.12 reminds us that death is every man's destiny. It's one of those things that all humankind have in common. Number eight, in 1 Corinthians 15, a great resurrection passage reminds us that in the resurrection, Jesus took the sting out of death. He took the sting out of death and he asked the question, and he says, death, where is your sting? Where, where is your victory? And that is a great comfort to us because we who are alive in Christ know that uh, the sting of death has been taken away because of the resurrection of Christ. Is the next point, number nine, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. Suffering prepares us for new avenues of ministry. Suffering prepares us for new avenues of ministry. In that passage, the Apostle Paul is saying that, you know, we are able to comfort others with the same comfort that we have received. You know, it's it's difficult that I had to go through some of the things that I have gone through, but now when I speak to someone who has lost a spouse, I can say to them, I can look them in the eye, and I can say to them, I know how you feel. Because I was married for nearly 29 years before Rand died. She was my childhood sweetheart. I used to push her on the swings when I was in sixth grade and she was in fourth grade. But you see, what I have gone through gives me a a platform, no pun intended here, but it gives me the opportunity to talk to other people with some sense of authority, not as a know-it-all, but as I truly understand what you're going through. We'll talk more about that in the next session. Number 10, in Colossians chapter 3, Verses 12 to 18, we are reminded that the bride of Christ is expected to be clothed with compassion. Clothed with compassion. Matthew chapter 9, in that, uh, that same point, is the passage where it says, one of those passages where Jesus looked at the multitudes and it says that he felt compassion for them. 
the bride of Christ, according to Colossians, is this is not an option for us. We are to be clothed with compassion as we care for the needs of other people. Number 11, in Hebrews 9.27, we find that death is the doorway to judgment. It's appointed for every man to die and then to face judgment is what Hebrews 9.27 talks about. Death is the doorway to judgment. And, and once we walk through that door, it closes And there's no handle on the other side. Number 12, James 1, verses 2 to 4, remind us that trials and testing develop our faith and our perseverance. But there is a reason in God's divine design to permit us to go through some of the things that we go through. And tomorrow morning, we'll explore that further from the book of Ruth. We just don't always understand what those purposes are. And finally, in Revelation chapter 21, here we find great hope in the fact that in the New Jerusalem, tears, death, mourning, crying, pain are non-existent. In the New Jerusalem, these things just are not part of all of eternity with God. And I don't know about you, but that's something that I really look forward to. Now, uh, we're going to take our break, about 15 minutes, right? We're running just a little bit behind schedule, but that's uh, uh, that's my norm. Um, so I'll tell you what we're going to do. I've got a, a DVD, a, 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 a video, excuse me, uh, a YouTube clip. I'll get it right yet. It's a YouTube clip, and uh, we'll start that. Not now. Not now, Adam. But that when you start to see that being played, it's a, it, it's a song by uh, Chris Tomlin. It's about five minutes long. Um, but when we start that song, um, you may want to start to make your way back to the seats and try to grab uh, some of the meaning of that song as uh, we hear the lyrics and, uh, and hear that, that music. Uh, I Will Rise by Chris Tomlin, and we'll start that in about 10 minutes, and then uh, we'll start our next session, the ABCs of, uh, of grief and loss. Um, so you are uh, excused for, uh, for a break. <laughs>